Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. For some time, the United States has been on the road to what many scholars and pundits repeatedly refer to as a coming civil war, 2.0. Major political figures call the coming elections a war for the soul of America. With increased attacks on academic freedom from right and left and a massive uptick in book challenges and bans across the country, this past month for Constitution Day, I hosted an expert panel at the Alba Valley College that looked at the need for open dialogue, constructive communication, and advocated for protecting the right to teach, read, and to disagree. Today on the Project Censored Show, the importance of academic freedom in a cancel culture obsessed with curtailing curricula and banning books. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Last month, I had the honor of hosting a Constitution Day panel at Diablo Valley College, where I spoke to Betsy Gomez, the national coordinator of Banned Books Week, Nico Perino, the executive vice president for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and media scholar and historian, author Nolan Higdon. We discussed the current state of censorious affairs in the United States, and we looked for solutions. Here are excerpts from the panel at the Apple Valley College for Constitution Day last month, just in advance of Banned Books Week. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Farr, Program Manager for Student Life. And today is a DVC Constitution Day panel moderated by Mickey Huff, Professor of Social Science, History, and Journalism Chair. Welcome, Mickey Huff. Thanks so much, Todd, and thanks for all the support of the Student Life Office. Constitution Day is something that we're required to celebrate every year. It might sound kind of ironic given some of the topics that we're dealing with, but the Constitution gave us a lot of interesting concepts to consider that have been codified and long practiced, and we still struggle with understanding them and upholding them. Chief among them, the Bill of Rights, passed in 1791. And of course, today's topic is going to be circling around the First Amendment. My name is Mickey Huff. I'm a professor of social science, history, and journalism here at the Apple Valley College. I am co-chair of history and chair of journalism. I am also director of Project Censored, the longtime media watchdog and news literacy organization founded in 1976. We publish annual reports on censored and underreported stories, as well as teach critical media literacy. So it's no surprise, I guess, that today's today's topic talks about these very important matters. And it's actually a really hot topic these days in the United States issues of free expression, the right to read, censorship, cancel culture. So the title of today's event is Let's Agree to Disagree, the Importance of Academic Freedom in a Cancel Culture Obsessed with Curtailing Curricula and Banning Books. Well, those of you who are here might be wondering, that's a mouthful. Um, How are we going to get into all that today? Well, we're going to try with the help of our expert guests. And so I'm going to introduce them to you here momentarily. For some time in the United States, We've really been on a road to what many scholars and pundits have repeatedly referred to as a coming civil war 2.0. We hear a lot of talk about how contentious our politics are, how divisive our political culture has become. And with that has come increased attacks on academic freedom from both the left and the right. 
We've seen a massive uptick in book challenges and bans across the country just in the last year. And our panelists, of course, are going to discuss the need for open dialogue, constructive communication, and advocate for protecting the right to teach, to read, and to disagree. Our guests present strategies to reduce tensions in our contentious political climate through critical thinking, as well as reciprocity and empathic listening while seeking alternatives to censorship in the quest to overcome current challenges and ameliorate our differences. So please let me introduce our esteemed guests today in order of presentation. Betsy Gomez is the Banned Books Week Coordinator and Coalition Director for, uh, former Coalition Director for Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization dedicated to defending the First Amendment rights of the comics community. Gomez manages resources, programming, and editorial content for Banned Books Week. You can learn more at bannedbooksweek.org and advises the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund on educational and free expression matters. She's also the editor of the CBLDF book about the women who changed free expression in comics. CBLDF presents She Changed Comics. We want to welcome Betsy Gomez. Betsy, thanks so much for being here today. Nico Perino is with us. Nico is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression Executive Vice President. He is also the creator and host of the FIRE's So to Speak, the Free Speech podcast. The FIRE, of course, should be no stranger to the folks here. We've had them around before. They used to be called the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, but they have since expanded their coverage, their legal support, to include free expression. And Nico will talk about that today. Prior to his current role, he led FIRE's communications department for nearly a decade, most recently as its senior vice president of communications. Nico previously worked in the comms department at the Institute for Justice. His writing has been featured in USA Today, Politico, Newsweek, and The Guardian, and he regularly travels around the country speaking about free speech and civil liberties issues. Nico Perino, welcome back here to DVC. And last but certainly not least is our own Nolan Higdon, author and university lecturer of history, education, and media studies. Higgins' areas of concentration include podcasting, digital culture, news media history, and critical media literacy. He's a regular contributor at Savage Minds and a project-censored national judge. So all that, I wanted to give our expert panelists proper introductions today so that you can really contextualize the important things that they have to tell us. Um, these, these aren't random folks off, off uh, you know, from the desert somewhere that are just spouting off about free expression. This is a contentious subject. A lot of people have opinions about it, and that's important, and it's fine to honor other people's opinions. It's also important that we recognize academic research, data collection, and sound logical and rational arguments when talking about these many things so that we can better understand each other and the importance of free expression in our society. So Banned Books Week started in 1982. It's the 40th anniversary. It was founded with the American Library Association and a few other groups that were very concerned about a surge in book challenges 40 years ago. And interestingly, we've kind of come full circle. We're kind of back to that issue. There has been a significant uptick and increase in banned books and book challenges, as well as challenges to academic freedom and educational gag laws that Nico Perino will discuss. So Betsy Gomez, let's start with you. Thank you, Mickey, and thanks for the introduction. I am so honored to be here and honored to be among these great panelists. So what is Banned Books Week? It's a thing that you've probably come across when you go to your library. Maybe you see a display in a bookstore. 
we used to call it a celebration, but really it's an advocacy event to inform people about censorship issues that are happening. Celebration is a word that really no longer applies because we used to use the context of celebrating our right to read, but the current environment for censorship is so contentious that we've really had to move away from this idea of just celebrating the right to read and move into a more defensive stance to say, hey, no, all of this stuff is happening. Censorship is happening all over the country, both sides of the aisle. Everybody's trying to get something removed from schools and libraries. The organization, when it started in 1982, was founded by the American Library Association, the American Booksellers Association, and a couple of other organizations as well. And now the umbrella has expanded to include several other organizations. We started the coalition because... It wasn't just ALA and ABA who were engaging with Banned Books Week. Additional organizations were also marking the week. And I'm just going to rattle off the list of coalition members because it's a pretty impressive list, in my opinion. So we still have the American Booksellers for Free Expression, which is a branch of the American uh, Booksellers Association, Uh, American Library Association, American Society of Journalists and Authors, Amnesty International USA, Association of University Presses, Authors Guild, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, NICO's organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, the Freedom to Read Foundation, GLAAD, Index on Censorship, the National Book Foundation, the National Coalition Against Censorship, the National Council of Teachers of English, PEN America, People for the American Way Foundation, PFLAG, and Project Censored. So as you can see, the umbrella has expanded to include not just anti-censorship organizations and library advocacy organizations, but we also have LGBTQ organizations. We've got CBLDF representing comic books uh, and more kind of general advocacy and civil rights organizations. So it's a pretty impressive list of people to, to have supporting this effort. Now, If you had asked me a few years ago about Banned Books Week and where I thought the future of Banned Books Week was going, you know, there was a sincere hope that maybe it it would become a genuine celebration of the freedom to read and we wouldn't have to focus so much on censorship. But the last two years has proven (laughs) that it's anything but. Censorship is still a major issue. It's, in fact, an even worse issue now than when the organization was founded, when Banned Books Week was founded. Part of the reason we still do this is because challenges and bans have profoundly increased. ALA has been tracking challenges in schools and libraries for more than two decades now. And last year alone, they received 729 challenge reports targeting nearly 1,600 titles. And it is a market increase over the year before. In 2020, they only had 156 reports with 273 titles being challenged. And so what we're seeing is not just one challenge, one book. We're seeing one challenge, several books, and it's gotten worse as the year has gone on. I expect we'll probably be seeing some fresh numbers soon, but, you know, PEN America has also been tracking and they're also seeing around 1,500 book removals between July 2021 and March 2022. So most of these challenges and bans are specifically targeting LGBTQ plus content and content dealing with race, racism, anti-racism, police brutality, and so-called CRT content. So this is the reason we're still honoring Banned Books Week and using it to bring this information to the public. In my experience working with Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, there's so many times I encountered people who didn't know censorship was happening. 
And among the most targeted books right now are things like Gender Queer by Maya Kobe, Flamer by Mike Corrado, books that deal with the LGBTQ experience and books that have images that are easily isolated by people who would remove them. So during Banned Books Week, we put on a series of events as a coalition and individually the spotlight censorship issues in libraries, schools, stores, and other locations. We engage people in discourse about what censorship is, how it's impacting readers, how it's impacting students, how it impacts library patrons and bookstore patrons. And we're also generating enthusiasm for the banned and challenged books because we need people's help to defend these materials. So in addition to all of the bands that are going on, there are a number of other things that are happening. We're seeing our protests at school board meetings led by various allegedly grassroots organizations like Moms for Liberty. A lot of these organizations are actually a prime example of astroturfing. They're getting a lot of support from PACs and prominent political figures behind the scenes. We're seeing school board recalls and elections in which members of the board are replaced with those who would remove books. We're also seeing actions organized on social media to go into libraries and schools and, and to basically harass the individuals who are selecting the books. We're also seeing police reports. Just recently, somebody filed a report against Mike Corrado's flamer in Katy, Texas, if I recall correctly, and the police had to go in and remove the book to review it to see if they're going to file charges. The police ultimately did not file charges because the book's not illegal. We're also seeing a lot of bills happening around the country that specifically target so-called divisive topics, CRT, the 1619 Project, LGBTQ materials. More than 200 bills have been proposed since the beginning of the year. A few of them have actually been passed. Florida have the Don't Say Gay Bill, the Stop Woke Act, Texas has also passed legislation that's restricted the teaching of race in schools, which has caused quite a lot of turmoil in both states as far as what educators can have in their classrooms and in their classroom collections and in libraries. So as a result of a lot of these attacks, we're also seeing self-censorship and soft censorship. School Library Journal released a report recently talking about how a lot of librarians, even in areas where censorship isn't happening, are being more hesitant about shelving specific titles. They're thinking twice about shelving a title that has been targeted in the media or by these organizations who are trying to get these materials removed. Now, it's not all terrible news, but there are things that are working. Student activism has been key in defending some of these materials. In fact, this year we have a youth honorary chair for Banned Books Week for the first year ever. Cameron Samuels, who is active in protesting the censorship of LGBTQ content in Katy, Texas. Cameron, whose pronouns are they, them, for a long time was the only student at the school board meetings. And then more people started showing up and that's gonna be an essential part of how we're going to, to continue this fight. Vocal community and support and organizing also essential. What we're seeing now in the last few months are more people showing up at the school board meetings, at library board meetings, to protest censorship. Earlier this year, it might have been mostly people there to remove the books. We're actually seeing mostly people there to support them. Communication and conversation has actually been pretty helpful. In a lot of cases, librarians and educators have been able to communicate why it's important to keep materials. Advocates like CBLDF, PAN America, ALA, all of the organizations in the coalition have also been able to help support these conversations by offering advice and support when people ask for it. 
Another thing that's working are policies that specifically support and cite support for intellectual freedom and the expertise of librarians and educators. One of the frequent attacks is against the expertise of those individuals, and it's essential that we need to express support for them. And finally, legal action. We've got several lawsuits around the country being led by different organizations. An example is just a couple of weeks ago in Virginia Beach, a local politician tried to sue genderqueer in a book by Sarah J. Moss, um, alleging they were obscene. The books themselves, not the writers, not the publishers, the books themselves were obscene. And they also asked uh, Barnes and Noble, they filed an injunction, a request for injunction against Barnes and Noble selling the books. Those lawsuits failed miserably, thanks to the work of CBLDF. ACLU and a number of other organizations. And in fact, the decision from the judge was a resounding support for the materials and that they were not obscene. So legal action is working. It's expensive though. So it's essential to support the organizations and the coalition. So what can you do? Report censorship, absolutely essential. If we don't know about it, we can't do anything about it. The organizations in the Banned Book Suite Coalition, several of them take reports. They have online reporting forms. Make sure we know about it. Even if you know that it resolved favorably, it's important to know that it's happening so we can track patterns, what's happening, how it's resolved, and it informs how resources are developed. Be informed. We have a list of events on the Banned Books Week website, bannedbooksweek.org slash events. And finally, something else you can do, you can join the Unite Against Book Bans campaign. Unite Against Book Bans is a coalition effort. The Banned Books Week Coalition is a member of that coalition as well, and it represents several dozen organizations, publishers, and advocates for the right to read. Definitely recommend that you sign up for that. There's a little red button on the website, uniteagainstbookbans.org. Attend school and library board meetings if you are able. If not, boost those who can. Show some love for your librarians and educators. They're facing some serious, serious pain right now, and uh, they really need all the love we can give them. And register to vote if you aren't registered already. If you are registered, encourage others to do so. And finally, when you do vote, know where your politicians stand on censorship. This is essential, especially since there is an organized effort to replace boards with individuals who would remove books. So with that, I will hand it back to Mickey. Thank you so much, Betsy Gomez. That was a, a stellar and whirlwind overview and Banned Books Week goes on all year, folks. There's 51 weeks of planning and one week of it. And we need to be mindful of all the work that goes on behind the scenes. You're listening to the Project Censored Show, and I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll hear more of the event for Constitution Day after this brief musical break. Stay with us. That are really tireless efforts to help support, you said it, Betsy, librarians in particular and teachers to keep access to information, to keep books on shelves. I don't get occasion to quote Thomas Jefferson much given his extremely problematic history. But one very fascinating thing that made it into the first inaugural address that Jefferson said that error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. And I think that that's a really important thing 
that we want to be mindful of when we're hearing about our next topic. We welcome Nico Perino from the Foundation of Individual Rights and Expression, which protects academic freedom from across the spectrum. Nico Perino, thanks so much for being here, Executive Vice President of the FIRE. Thanks, Mickey. Really happy to be here. I travel the country quite frequently giving talks about freedom of expression and civil liberties. And inevitably during those discussions, ban books week comes up or the banning of books comes up. And for a couple of years there, I've been at FIRE since 2012, you would sort of see people in the audience think of it as like an anachronism. Like this isn't something that happens in America anymore. Ulysses is on the shelf now. But these past two years, I think, really bring it to the fore that this is no longer something that's in in the past. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. And uh, that the fight for free expression and artistic expression is an ever-going one. Um, You never know when the next wave of censorship is going to come. And that wave has surely, as Betsy discussed, uh, washed over us here. You know, in addition to the challenges from state legislatures to books. I also just want to take a moment to talk about what happened to Salman Rushdie. For those of you who don't know, Salman Rushdie is an Indian-born author who in 1989 published The Satanic Verses, which was a book that led to worldwide protest, presumably, at least in my mind, by people who didn't actually read the book. In fact, if you talk to Salman Rushdie, some of the places where the book was being most vehemently protested, the book wasn't even available to purchase. But the Ayatollah Khomeini of of Iran had issued a fatwa against him, which essentially put a large bounty on his head. And he went into hiding for nine years. It's a hiding that he recounts in his 2012 book, I believe, Joseph Anton, which was his pseudonym that he adopted for those nine years while he was in hiding and people were trying to kill him. Fire in 2019 had Salman Rushdie speak at our 20th anniversary gala. And we asked him, as we invited him, what sort of security do we need to provide to you? And he said, none. Salman Rushdie was going out and living his life. I have a friend, uh, Michael Moynihan, works for Vice News. He talked about how he was having dinner with Salman Rushdie at the end of July, and uh, he hopped into an Uber, no security around him, no idea who the Uber driver was or the people on the sidewalk were. And he just felt secure in his life. And I'm sure as many of you know here who are sitting in on this discussion, uh, Salman Rushdie was attacked and stabbed multiple times at an event in New York State. Is uh, He had a nerve severed. He lost an eye. He was in a coma for a period of time. And I actually don't know what's how Salman Rushdie's state is currently. Apparently, he is speaking according to his son. But this is something that happened to this man because he wrote a book. A fictional recounting, magical realism is the novels that he writes, that accurately discussed a fact in Muslim history of the, relating to the satanic verses. And for doing that, he, for 30 years, had to watch over his shoulder. And unfortunately, the assassin's veto almost nearly got him. Probably the biggest book challenge slash ban of the last 50 years. You still cannot get the satanic verses in the country of India, where Salman Rushdie was born. And Salman is perhaps India's most famous author in the world. So it's quite, it's an incredible indictment of sort of the state of things, the fact that Salman Rushdie at a literary event in New York state where presumably he was secure, he nearly lost his life. So I thought, I thought it was just important to quickly address that, but I want to return to to some of the challenges to academic freedom that are wrapped up into these book bans. 
fired, filed a lawsuit against the Stop Woke Act, which Betsy alluded to, which is an act in the state of Florida that reaches into college classrooms and essentially dictates what professors and students can discuss in those classrooms. Issues of race, sex, gender, these topics are proscribed in a certain sense. There's a certain viewpoint that you have to express if you're going to talk about them. You can't even play doubles advocate for the opposite viewpoints. And while there have been a number of these so-called divisive concept bills that Betsy alludes to, FIRE has spent the past two years ensuring that they do not reach into higher education. This is before we expanded our mission. And our probably biggest failure in the last 10 years is that we were unable to stop it from actually becoming law in the state of Florida. I'd say it's a source of deep, deep, deep concern to us. We were able to stop them in many states. There are some states that also have them like Oklahoma, and I want to talk about Oklahoma here in a second, but we were able to get them stopped in a number of states, but they're going to keep coming. The desire to censor viewpoints with which one disagrees, to eliminate access to those viewpoints in the form of books. You have to wonder if it ends at books, right? Like a certain part of me loves the fact that we're putting so much attention on libraries because libraries are an important part of our society and presumably the book banners see them as that and that's why they're targeting them for their bans. But does it reach to the internet? Where does it stop? You leave school, okay. Are the, are the, is the presumption that these students aren't going to have access to this sort, same sort of information on the internet? That's kind of, I think, what they were trying to do in Virginia by seeking to label obscene genderqueer in a court of mist and fury. If they had succeeded in that, which fortunately they did not, it would have become illegal to sell or lend those books in the state of Virginia. I live in the state of Virginia, and I can only think about the long-term consequences of that, not just for those books, but for other books. But in the state of Oklahoma, you have a situation where a teacher succumbed to the restrictions that that state has on the books that can be offered to students. I believe, and if I'm getting my facts correct, the teacher had to turn any of these potentially forbidden books, turn them around so you can read the name. And in doing that, the teacher put a QR code on the bookshelf that allowed students to snap a picture of the QR code and access Brooklyn Library's collection of the banned books for free, anyone across the country, which I thought was kind of a creative way of circumventing the law saying, okay, I'm not going to offer you these books, but I'm going to tell you that a public library exists where you can find these books. Unfortunately, she was punished or fired and We'll see where that one ends up, hopefully in court. The ACLU is challenging the Oklahoma law, so we'll see where that one goes. But I also, before I close up here, want to speak to another concern. We obviously have a concern around the access to books once they're published, but I have a broader concern about the publishing of books. There are a number of books, and we hear about them every day, that are accepted for publication, and then they get in front of sensitivity readers, so-called sensitivity readers at these publishing houses, which look through the book to find anything in the book that might potentially be offensive and then eradicate the offensive text from that book. And there are some books that just don't get published because the authors aren't willing to censor their work. This is the unseen side of book censorship, and it's done by the publishing houses themselves. One has to wonder whether Salman Rushdie's satanic verses would have ever been published if sensitivity readers existed in 1988 and 1989. Fortunately, they didn't. And that book shortly thereafter became a bestseller. I'll actually add one more point too. And the cause of free speech is of course wrapped up in banned books, but what is a book? John Milton called them the master spirit of an individual, so to speak. This is a person's identity 
a person's beliefs, a person's thoughts put into writing. Is that any different than censoring someone's beliefs or thoughts in music or in a speech? You know, in a certain sense it is, but I see the challenge being just as great in that context as well. The idea that someone can't bear witness to who they are and express their beliefs and their creativity and the means that they hope to do so. So this is an important conversation and I appreciate all the work that Betsy has done as part of the Band Books Week Coalition. And I look forward to the day when we are celebrating the freedom to read again and not the existence of book bans and challenges. Thank you so much, Nico Perino, Executive Vice President of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Thanks for being here and sharing the important work you're doing on the legal front. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll hear more excerpts from this Constitution Day talk on the First Amendment and academic freedom after this brief musical break. Stay with us. We now want to move to our final panelist. I welcome Nolan Higdon, who is a university lecturer. He's an historian, a media studies scholar. Among the books he's done recently, just this year, he and I did a book called Let's Agree to Disagree that he's going to talk a little bit about now. The subtitle, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy, where we really look at the importance of understanding why we need dialogue, why we need critical thinking skills, and why censorship is not the solution to battle or combat ideas with which we disagree. We also talk a lot in the book about the importance of constructive communication and listening. And I know Nolan's going to share a lot of great things with us here. So with that, please welcome Nolan Higdon. Hi, Mickey. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here and be on a panel um, with uh, just all of you great folks. It's been great to listen. Uh, it's great to see uh, friends here in attendance and future friends as well. So this is really cool that we get to do this in this uh, special day. I want to open up actually with a with a quote that's often, or at least a concept that's often attributed to Winston Churchill. I, I normally wouldn't open up with um, Churchill, but uh, this seems to be the month where we excuse uh, British atrocities. Um, Winston Churchill reportedly said, um, you know, that democracy is the worst system except for all the rest that have been tried from time to time. And it was a reminder uh, that democracy is imperfect, it's problematic, it's a pain in the ass, it's annoying, but um, it's the best system humans have developed. Um, and it's important to remember that on a, on a day like this in Constitution Day, when um, you know study after study for the last decade for sure has shown that the U.S. has slipped into oligarchy, um, even on the democracy index, we're now like in the 40s, um, around the globe, um, democracies are slipping. And so we're in a global age where democracy is in retreat, uh, something we really haven't seen in about 100 years. Um, and studies show this inside the US. Um, people inside the United States increasingly believe they're going to see a civil war in their lifetime. Their number one fear is other Americans, not terrorism, not climate change. You know, it's other Americans, the very people you're supposed to be voting with. And this becomes really um, anti-democratic. It's no longer about, you know, I don't want to lose the, the election and live under your policies for four years. It's if I lose the election, you're going to ruin my way of life. Um, that sort of thinking makes it very difficult um, to have a democracy. 
And as Mickey pointed out, some of the work we've, we've done over the years um, has talked about sort of, you know, how do we get here um, and, and what we can do about it? And that's briefly what I want to discuss um, today. And I think what we need to remember um, that for at least over the last 40 years, uh, we've the United States has increasingly adopted some serious problematic positions. Um, we believe in this sort of techno-utopian ideology that uh, conflates access to tech with attainment of knowledge. So if we just put a smartphone in everybody's hands, they'll be intelligent. Um, we think debate is about winning, um, especially for young people. The only debate they really see is in 24-hour news shows where it's 10 panelists arguing about a critical issue for three minutes between commercial breaks. Um, if that's your idea of debate, it makes it very difficult to have substantive conversation, which democracy necessitates. Um, and we've also been under this um, you know, toxic neoliberal ideology that, that privileges individualism um, over the collective good. So we've lost any sense of common good when it comes to issues of class, race, gender, sexuality, um, or critical issues in our, in our society. Well, you know, we, there's a lot of people who sort of vapidly virtue signal to these issues, but not actually make substantive or robust change um, to address inequities or losses of material conditions. Um, instead, it, it, this sort of neoliberal position um, is more about expanding one's brand, building one's network, um, and really focuses on the individual. Um, it normalizes a, a meritocratic thinking. Um, so, you know, we all start from the same place, according to this thinking, and if you're in a position of power or if you have money, it must be because you worked hard and deserve it, and conversely, if you're poor, uh, it must be because you didn't work hard enough, right? Um, it's in, in education, meritocracy reigns supreme. Um, the uh, deprofessionalism of educators has been a result of this, this shift over the last 40 years, and we increasingly treat students as customers, uh, not citizens. And the customer is always right. We've also seen, in, in addition, this media has exacerbated a lot of these problems in our individualistic, ID, um, uh, isolated bubbles. We increasingly think about ourselves, and media perpetuates that. Um, media, especially news media, has adopted narratives of red versus blue. Um, so, if you want to vote, uh, if you want to root for the blue team, you can tune into MSNBC. And they'll tell you how right you are, and they'll give you a character of conservatives who you can hate. Um, if you want to vote for the conservative team, you can turn on Fox. They'll tell you you're right. They'll give you a character of the other side. And um, studies show, both in the physical sense and in the, the digital sense, we increasingly um, interact with people we disagree with less and less. Uh, we find ourselves in these homogenized bubbles, um, which confirm our worldview um, versus challenge it. Um, social media is obviously problematic for this. Algorithms confirm our biases. Uh, biases. Um, they reduce social to trivial content creation and toxic arguments. Um, they normalize blocking or canceling people we don't like versus engaging with these folks to try and change their minds. And collectively, some of the things I've mentioned here, these trends really work against democracy because democracy necessitates social capital. That is, we have to have networks of relationships uh, that allow society to function. And you can't have that uh, with the way we've been going the last 40 plus years. Um, conflict is a fact of life. You'll never get rid of conflict. It's, it's a question of how to manage conflict. And 
we want to do that constructively. How do we work constructively uh, to maintain our democracy and further our society? You don't do that through censorship. You don't do that through cancellation. You don't do that uh, through banning. That's destructive conflict. Constructive conflict necessitates uh, collaborating together to get the best outcome. Um, and as a way to, to reverse some of the, the trends I've talked about, um, we really need to take seriously the idea of promoting critical thinking um, in this country. Uh, we need to hold people accountable um, for the evidence they do or don't have with the goal of breaking this left-right paradigm um, that we need to think more deeper. It's not just about rooting for your team or your team winning or your team lampooning the other side. What are the actual goals? What are we trying to achieve? What evidence do we have? What case can we make? And, but we also need a critical theory to account for the ways in which power and privilege shape these debates. Um, power and privilege uh, can course these debates. We need to be uh, cognizant of that. But we must not let the rhetoric of power and privilege be uh, co-opted by pernicious neoliberal actors, uh, just like we can't let um, ideas of freedom, liberty, or freedom of speech be co-opted to a narrow conservative ideology. Um, we also need, and I emphasize need media literacy in, in this country. We've, we've talked a lot about books and rightfully so, we should protect books. Um, but in a lot of our, our education system, we rightly teach students how to write like they're writing a book or how to read a book or deconstruct a book, but we don't do the same for other forms of media. Um, and whether it be film or whether it be social media, whether it be an advertisement, a meme online, whatever it is, um, we need to treat those with the same critical thinking skills and approach that we would a book in the classroom. Um, you know, students are using this media day in and day out, and they need to treat um, that media with the same way they would a book. Um, investigating things about the message and the representation and the production process and the, the ideology and, and et cetera. And they also need to be encouraged to become media makers um, themselves. Um, so, uh, in closing, I'll just say that um, it's important to, to also remind ourselves in, in this, this age of individualism that in a democracy, it necessitates that we all work 24 hours a day to protect the democratic process. Um, you, if you don't feel like working 24 hours a day on a democracy, you're in luck. There's a lot of authoritarians around the world who are looking for docile bodies to join their regime. Um, but democracy necessitates working 24 hours a day. Um, so it's it's probably not a good idea to say uh, it's not my job or or I'm tired. Uh, when I hear I'm tired, I, I think back to to Frederick Douglass, who I think is one of the, uh, if not the most phenomenal American in, in our history. And, and Douglass, I'm sure, was really really tired when he had to learn in secret as a slave. I'm sure he was tired when he had to fight a slave breaker. I'm sure he was tired when he had to escape slavery. I'm sure he was tired when he was almost killed giving speeches against slavery. I'm sure he was tired when he sent his sons off to war, and I'm sure he was tired when he was fighting Jim Crow segregation after the Civil War. Uh, but until any of us do or uh, make a drop of difference as Frederick Douglass, I wouldn't complain about being tired. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nolan. It's important to remember that these are collective efforts, and the more people that we do have engaged in these, these issues, uh, the more uh, it's not just a few of us doing it all the time, and it's all of us doing it some of the time, to back each other up and support each other. Lori Hulse Anderson in their 1999 book Speak said that censorship is the child of fear and the, the father of ignorance. And unfortunately that dysfunctional family has grown quite a bit over the last couple of decades. And we really have a lot of work to do and it requires vigilance and understanding 
and it requires patience in really difficult situations. I'm really glad that Nolan mentioned Frederick Douglass at the end there, because we actually wrote about Douglass right after we were quoting Jefferson. We immediately quoted Douglass in our book saying, free speech protections, of course, move beyond elite political classes and played a key role in advancing pro-democracy movements for civil rights, voting rights, women's rights, and abolitionism. And in 1860, former slave and radical abolitionist Frederick Douglass stated, Liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions has ceased to exist. That, of all rights, is the dread of tyrants. It is the right which they first of all strike down. They know its power. Slavery cannot tolerate free speech. And of course, slavery comes in many guises, not just with physical chains, but mental ones. So with that, I would like to Thank all of our esteemed panelists. Thanks to the coordinator of Band Books Week, Betsy Gomez. Thanks to Nico Perino, Executive Vice President of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and our own Nolan Higdon, co-author of Let's Agree to Disagree, also faculty with us here at Diablo Valley College. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue after this brief musical break with segment of Q&A from the Constitution Day panel. Stay tuned. I'd like to open it up to all of you for anybody to ask questions, make comments, comments or questions for our panelists today. Yes, Antonio. I just wanted to maybe get a little more insight into um, what you guys feel about how, how our modern generation and our kind of change to individualism and why we are kind of seeing why democracy is dying out and what a reason for that would be. Who wants to tackle that? I can go first and give a, a couple of answers. Uh, thank you, Antonio. First, I'll, I'll say I would never be comfortable blaming any particular generation for, for any outcome. When we talk about these generational differences, uh, you, you asked about sort of the younger generation, and I'll say a couple of things, but believe me, there, there's plenty of um, critiques to make about all generations previous. I, I think one thing in, in particular um, in our school system, we saw an emaciation of, of civics, uh, particularly in K-12 education over the last 20 to 30 years. So even students who are interested in the political process or interested in these issues or getting involved have been taught sort of like basic government um to to know what to do to to get involved and so i think that's a a problem throughout the society um i think also social media media in general but social media companies in particular have done really slick advertising uh making big promises about if you dedicate your life to being like an influencer or getting famous and things like that and a lot of folks have sort of made that a goal even though it's very little um chance that the folks who try it are going to get wealth and second, it's not guaranteed even if you get that wealth and fame, you're going to have happiness. Um, and so I think that uh, those are kind of two, two critical factors I, I see uh, playing a role in response to your question. Thanks, Antonio. Nico, do you want to chime in here or Betsy? I just want to chime in with like, I think a little bit of a historical perspective about why we seem to target young people in particular in a lot of these conversations. Society changes. It's always changing, sometimes for the better. Right now, it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere better, but I think older generations have a tendency to be scared of the things, terrified by the things that appeal to younger members of 
the population. And we see it manifest in a lot of different things around us. We saw it in the 1950s with the comic book scare and the Senate subcommittee hearings of juvenile delinquency because one psychologist alleged that, that comics were causing juvenile delinquency. You might as well have been saying like chewing gum was ca causing juvenile delinquency because 95% of the population was reading comics. And then we saw it later on with heavy metal and satanic panic. And we saw it again with rap and hip hop and we see it with video games and we see it with any of the media that appeals to younger generations in part because older generations aren't as familiar with it, may not be as comfortable with it, and don't understand it. We tend to be scared of the things we don't understand. So no one's really at fault here. Every generation has issues. Nico, given your history of working with the fire and the emphasis on education, anything you want to add? Because, you know, one of the unique things about your organization, you've jumped in and protected people from multiple sides of the ideological spectrum, attacking each other, trying to silence each other. You've, of course, brought up a couple of the recent cases, the educational gag orders, the Stop Woke Act, and a few of the others. Yeah, I mean, there's been some discussion during this panel about uh, individuality. I'd remind the audience that our organization's name is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Individual rights are very important to us. They are what we believe to be core to a free society, the ability for the individual to bear witness to who they are and express their beliefs. And we do that every day on college campuses. We defend the student at Eastern Virginia Medical Center who wants to start a single-payer healthcare group who is denied by that university's administration the right to do so. At the same time, we defend students at Clovis Community College, California who want to hand out anti-socialist flyers on campus and are denied the ability to do so. Looking at generational differences is, is always interesting. And I, I think you read the ancient Romans, you'll find them lamenting the current generation as well. And I think we always have a tendency to catastrophize the current situation. And I think there are very real challenges in our world that we shouldn't, as Nolan said, just throw our hands up and let wash over us. But I am also cognizant of the person born in 1900, right? Who, as soon as they turn 14, World War I breaks out. Five years later, you get the Spanish influenza. They lived through the Roaring Twenties only to find a Great Depression followed by the rise of fascism, the nuclear bomb, the assassinations of you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the Kennedy brothers, and then stagflation in the 1970s. So every generation has faced their own challenges. Ours are different. And I always just try and keep that in perspective. And no generation is weaker than the other, just addressing different challenges. I personally think that the, well, I think talking about the generation or framing this in terms of generations is interesting. Definitely one thing unique about our generation is that we grew up with the internet. And the internet has caused like a massive societal shift. But in some positive ways, for sure, but also in some negative ways. Increased depression, increased anxiety, and also, it also, there's a general sense that the responsibility of citizenship is pretty much forgotten by the young generation. They just want to pass that off to the leaders who, you know, they're going to probably use that for authoritarian ends or needs. So that's kind of the general feeling I get uh, from like the modern age. That, you know, like, 
the internet was supposed to, you know, like connect us, set us free, but instead it's kind of made us more huddled, more, more we feel like we lack control. So we, so we attack others to feel like we have like control of our own lives. And that feels like there's some sort of destiny that we can reach to, but we're just kind of caught in this kind of whirlwind of kind of like conflict that isn't productive towards anything. That's that's kind of my general feeling about the modern age. And so I don't know. It'll be it'll be hard for like new leaders to like anyways, sorry, I'm I'm trying to connect this to the like censorship, <laughs> but I feel like this is con but I feel like the lack to even care about engaging in democracy is kind of leading to this censorship. And while I tend to think and like I tend to be a libertarian on most things pretty much and I think there should be free, free access information. Um, Mickey, Mickey, can I respond there? Uh, please do. Yeah, please. Yeah, Thank you. No, it's just it's just a really interesting point, one that I've thinking about a lot. You know, I lived through the Arab Spring of 2011 when there were a lot of think pieces being written about how uh, the Internet is going to democratize the world. Right. Uh, there aren't so many think pieces making that same argument right now. And I just wonder what it would have been like to be a fly on the wall in the 15th century during the rise of the printing press and like the, and the papal suites, right. As you're about to enter, uh, centuries of, uh, religious wars as a result, primarily of the advent of the printing press. Um, it took, uh, human civilization centuries to figure out how to adapt to the printing press. Um, and I wonder if we're just kind of at the same point now with the internet, right? The printing press brought millions of people into the conversation and now the internet has brought billions of people and we haven't figured out the systems, uh, or the best practices to be able to live with that sort of constant conversation from billions of our peers. Um, and I think Mickey and Nolan have done some work on that, particularly around civic literacy. And I believe civic literacy is one of the solutions to teaching us to live with that. Uh, particularly surrounding concerns regarding fake news, misinformation, disinformation, whatever you think of those. I mean, the way to sort those out is civic liter literacy, at least in my mind. Um, but we haven't quite figured it out yet. We're only a decade into it. It took them centuries to figure out the printing press. So we have a couple questions in the chat about cancel culture. I know the fire has dealt with the cancel culture phenomenon and professors who weren't going along with certain policies or who challenged DEI policies wound up in the hot seat in some legal cases. The whole concept of the term is, as was pointed out here in the chat, has been problematic to say the least. Nolan and I wrote about it actually from multiple perspectives in the Let's Agree to Disagree book. And it, last year for Constitution Day, we featured Dan Kavalik, the human rights attorney, who was author of a book called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, Arguing Against Censorship. Nico or Betsy, do you wanna chime in on that topic? This is kind of my personal take on cancel culture, and I'm totally cool with everybody disagreeing with me or agreeing. One thing I like to say a lot is free speech does not mean speech without consequences. So if you say something boneheaded and people call you out, that doesn't mean you're being canceled. That means they're calling you out. They have a right to express themselves too. I don't like the term cancel culture because I find that a lot of the people who are screaming about cancel culture still have platforms. There is, you know, valid concern that all of this screaming is drowning out voices. 
it's just, we need to remember that when we're saying things, people are allowed to respond and we can respond in turn. It can be back and forth. That's what discussion is. That's just kind of my take on it. I don't, I don't know if I answered the question or not. Nico? I want to agree with Betsy on one point and then maybe disagree with her on another point. Calling people out, 100% protected by the First Amendment. That is part of our national discourse. If you are punished or jailed for doing such a thing, a fire would have your back 1000%. But I think one of the differences between fallout culture, so to speak, and cancel culture is that there seems to be an effort afoot, not just to respond, but to actually get the person fired, to remove them from the conversation. It's one thing to participate in the conversation, but it seems like cancel culture is a way to avoid the conversation entirely by just trying to remove the other person from the conversation. And there are very real consequences. People lose their jobs. People are unable to afford their mortgage. They might still have a platform, but they might be tweeting from a school bus now, as Stephen Salida, who was canceled from his uh, professorship at the University of Illinois, was. Colin Kaepernick can't get back into the NFL as a result of that canceled Mm -hmm. campaign. In each one of these cases, there was a loud voice, loud voices, a mob, some might say, tagging the institutions that employed these people to have them fired. I don't know that that's healthy for a democratic society where your first instinct is not just to engage and debate this person, but to find a way to punish them. It also is a sad commentary on what we think debate and discussion can accomplish. Like, do you really think we're at a point where you can never change someone's mind and that the only way to win an argument now is to eliminate the person making that argument on the other side? I mean, that's how you get at the extreme, a case where people believe that they need to kill Salman Rushdie. So I think council culture is real. I've seen it escalate in academia and it concerns me for our, you know, our broader public conversation. Mickey, can I just add something? Yeah, to that go ahead. Cause I, I agree with what both Betsy and, and Nico said so far. I want to add just another, another layer to this. There's another problem with it that, too, that really bothers me is it gives people what I call the delusion of power. So these users think they're holding these folks accountable, but really what they're doing is they're legitimizing companies, whether it be, you know, big tech or some corporate industry to effectively fire someone for taking an unpopular position. And I, I think it, it, it's a slippery slope if we go down this road where we say like, well, I like it when big tech removes this person or that person. And even though the right does a really great job of amplifying um, the conservative voices that have been censored on social media, there's a longstanding campaign of uh, silencing the left on social media and in big tech spaces and search engines, including my own conference, Critical Media Literacy Conference the Americas, had a keynote speaker, a scholar of color talking about algorithms of oppression, and her speech was removed from YouTube. I also think that's an important layer to, to think about is when you have the delusion of power that you're holding people accountable, you're not the platform is. Great points from both Nolan and Nico. And Nico, I do actually, I kind of blunt instrumented my response, sorry. I actually personally don't believe people should be fired. I tend to believe that if people do something wrong, they can learn from that. And when we fire them or we remove them from employment, we're just reinforcing the behavior in a lot of ways, the the problematic behavior, because what are they going to take from that? They're going to take from from that, that my free speech was violated. I can't be employed. And they're not going to actually learn what might have been problematic about their speech. They're not going to have a conversation, a discussion. I think it was a a really wonderful conversation. I want to thank all of our panelists, guests, 
I want to thank Betsy Gomez, Band Book Suite coordinator. I want to thank Nico Perino, Executive Vice President of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. I also want to thank Professor Nolan Higdon uh, and all of you for your thoughtful commentary. I want to thank all of you for being here and asking stellar questions and offering your insights and your ideas. This is exactly the kind of thing that I think we need to do more. We need to have people together talking about ideas. We need to try to understand better. And in fact, that really was the impetus behind, um, it's actually been the impetus behind several of the books Nolan Higdon and I have done, United States of Distraction, as well as Let's Agree to Disagree, which is actually more of a handbook to how to mitigate some of these kinds of difficult situations and conflicts. I would strongly recommend that folks check out Banned Books Week. I put a lot of chat, uh, put a lot of comments in the chat. Uh, we will save that. And if you are interested in learning more about it, you can also contact me through the college, mhuff at dvc.edu. I can connect you to people at these organizations. I can also be contacted through Project Censored. So um, Betsy, Nico, Nolan, I want to thank you all for being here. Todd Farr, Student Life Office, all of our sponsors. Um, and I want to leave us on a, on a, on a note to consider uh, African-American musician Daryl Davis fought against racism much of his life. And instead of not engaging in white supremacists and white racists, he did the opposite. He went and has collected over 200 hoods of Ku Klux Klansmen over the years that he engaged in difficult dialogue and conversation to get them to understand why their ideas were harmful and they weren't grounded in factual reality. And that's not to say we're all Daryl Davises, but it is to suggest that there is hope, there is a way to bridge gaps. There are ways to have constructive dialogue and build bridges, not walls. And I know that's what all of our organizations respectively try to do by supporting the right to free expression, while also protecting people who are marginalized and really need an equal seat at our larger and more diverse societal table. So again, I want to thank everybody for being here. And uh, again, I really appreciate all of you. I'm Mickey Health Professor at the Apple Valley College, and this has been yet another Constitution Day here at the Apple Valley College. Thanks, y'all, for being here. And I hope you have a good week. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians because they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.